Definitely. <laughs> Getting used to it again. <laughs> Here, you can have an included clue sound of me fake crying. Welcome back, Mary Jo. Thanks, Blake. Mary Jo is typically a commentator on the podcast, but she's been out and about recently. Tell us where you've been. Man, I've been all over the place, specifically in Philadelphia for the EDUCON conference, and then over to Washington, D.C. for Teach for America's 25th anniversary summit. And can I tell you, the conversation was anything but boring. Did you see any big themes come up? Definitely. Uh, Technology and equity was a big one. So was the poor quality of a lot of professional development out there. Um, For the sake of this podcast, though, I brought back a few sound bites with me that deal with the growth mindset and whether it's really all it's cracked up to be. So Summit Public Schools CEO Diane Tavener and personalized learning critic Benjamin Riley went head to head on that on a panel. And they discussed whether personalized learning is the answer to solving the achievement gap. So I'm excited to get into that. Mm, So am I. I have a feeling they probably disagreed on more than a few points. Here we go. I'm Blake Montgomery. And I'm Mary Jamata. Welcome to the Ed Search Podcast. Let's get started. Ring the wrestling bell. Ding, ding, ding. In this corner, the Park and SBAC tests rapidly losing states. And in this corner, the college prep giants SAT and ACT. Over the past few years, Park and Smarter Balanced have fallen out of favor as the preferred Common Core Align exams. Will the redesigned SAT and ACT take over the throne? Well, three states are already using the SAT as their statewide high school test, and 11 are doing it with the ACT. The logic behind it is that everyone's already taking those tests to determine their college readiness. So why not just make it official? It's still TBD as to what states will do about testing the lower grades. The ACT just released the ACT Aspire exams, and those are geared at grades 3 through 8. We know we'll see some new things coming down the pipeline. Edutainment is synonymous with bad learning games. But back in the mid-90s, when there was the Oregon Trail and Reader Rabbit, it was the hottest thing in the classroom and the education industry. Then, a saturated market and one disastrous merger torpedoed everything. That's a whole nother tragedy involving Mitt Romney and Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank that we could get into, but we're looking at the present. The educational games market today may not be so different from back in the 90s. The app stores are just as crowded, and several creators of Carmen Sandiego think we may be headed in the same direction. Digital citizenship is a must-learn for today's students, and EdSurge columnist Kayla Deltzer has the perfect approach. She lets her second-grade students run her classroom's Twitter and Instagram accounts. She writes, Wouldn't you prefer to have your students write the story of your classroom rather than someone else? You can check out the rest of her column on edsurge.com. Imagine K-12, the original EdTech accelerator, is formally joining Y Combinator. Companies accepted into the next Imagine K-12 cohort will be part of YC, but continue to receive mentoring and support from the four-person IK-12 team. Graduating entrepreneurs will debut at YC's Demo Day, which attracts a broad community of investors. We ask, is EdTech ready to go mainstream? The Imagine K-12 co-founders and YC's founders have always been tight, but now they'll be family. YC hasn't invested as much in EdTech in the past, but that's about to change. Data standards are useful, but only if there aren't too many different ones competing for market share. The fewer there are, the better. Two nonprofits behind education data standards 
EDFI Alliance, and IMS Global, are partnering to create a unified approach to rostering and the management of student and teacher accounts for digital tools. Will they make a new standard for standards? We shall see. And now it's time for... Kitching. Apollo Education Group, the owner and operator of the University of Phoenix, has agreed to be acquired for $1.1 billion by a group of investors including Apollo Global Management. Regulators worry that Apollo Education, beset by declining enrollments and investigations into its recruiting practices, will be harder to scrutinize once it goes private. A note, Apollo Global Management and Apollo Education were previously unaffiliated. VTech, a Hong Kong-based educational toy maker, has made an offer to acquire Californian toy maker LeapFrog for $72 million. LeapFrog's market value has been in decline for the past decade after becoming a common household name in the early 2000s. After School has raised a $16.4 million round led by Accomplice. Based in San Francisco, the company makes closed social networks where high school students can post anonymously. It's earned a reputation for being banned from Apple's App Store for four months last year. Congratulations to them and to all the other companies that raised money this week. Now, like we mentioned before, part of the reason I've been gone the last few days was that I had the chance to attend Teach for America's 25th Anniversary Summit. And while there, I got to catch a debate that really caught my eyes and my ears. Specifically, is personalized learning really the answer to every school's problems? That's a can of worms, especially when you're Diane Tavener and Benjamin Riley. Diane, for context, is the CEO and founder of Summit Public Schools. Benjamin Riley is the founder of Deans for Impact. Diane, on the one hand, is a fervent supporter of personalized learning, especially when it comes to EdTech. In fact, she's written about it on EdSurge and speaks about it frequently at conferences. But then on the other hand, there's Benjamin Riley, who also writes a fair amount online and thinks that the obsession with personalized learning is actually hurting students. In fact, in a debate with Alex Hernandez, who's a partner at the Charter School Growth Fund, Riley wrote that the personalization concept has become an empty vessel into which one may pour any number of competing theories or policies. Poetic, but he's certainly not the biggest fan. Nope. I've always been curious to get a better idea as to why, though. Is it that personalized learning is too wrapped into ed tech? Is it too much of a buzzword? So actually, that's a great place to start, Blake. So while I was watching Benjamin and Diane debate, the first thing that came up were some of these nebulous terms that you hear a lot in personalized learning, like grit and growth mindset. Now, Diane feels that Carol Dweck's research into the concept of growth mindset is very useful for schools. What what exactly is the growth mindset? Um, I'd say that that means when kids can envision themselves getting better or smarter, but specifically through dedication and hard work, not just brains and talent. And Benjamin doesn't believe in that? I need to hear this. Listen to Carol Dweck, who's brilliant, the researcher and developer. She's running around the country right now telling everybody to chill out. Okay? That actually what's happening is there's been radical misinterpretation of what having a growth mindset means. And people think that as long as you've got teachers saying like seven positive things to a student, there's demonstration that it's great and that they like hit that metric. Okay? And, and I'm not kidding, like even in the DC system, the impact evaluation system, there's some of these components to the evaluation, and you're just seeing sort of this pantomime going on by teachers. And if you're a DC public uh, school teacher, you may know what I'm talking about. So again, I go back to not the ideal, 
the ideal, of course, you would love to have some sort of system where we could peer inside everybody's mind and be able to figure out you know, exactly where the learning was activated and where it wasn't. But we don't design to the ideal. And I actually think that um, if we spent more time focusing on one thing that is fairly easy, relatively, to identify, which is, have you mastered the content? Have you mastered the understanding you know these facts about the world, both in subjects that we test and some of the subjects that I think we don't that we might think about? We might actually get a lot further at getting those second-order things like readiness, resiliency, collaboration, those things that we would like to see in our students that you typically see in high-functioning schools where the kids have learned a lot of the content. Okay, so teachers aren't really fully integrating the concept of growth mindset. The ideal is great, but schools aren't actually designing to that ideal. I wonder if Diane feels differently. Well, okay, so she brings up the fact that what makes growth mindset difficult to implement is a lack of solid assessments, you know, testing, things like that. How do you assess whether a student has a positive growth mindset and then whether it's affecting their learning or not? Um, so we work directly with Carol and T on this. And so um, there is something really important to note that we're not going to give a standardized test on these things. But what you can do and what is effective is look at a student's self-perception around mindsets, the people around them's perception of that student's mindsets, and you can correlate that with their performance on academic measures. And you can start to see where things are misaligned, and you can actually properly intervene then. That's the type of assessment I'm talking about in order to actually do something about it. Right now, we don't measure it, and we have no idea what to do about it. So if you have it or getting it from home, great. If you're not, you're not getting it at school. What about where technology fits into all of this? I'm not just talking about growth mindset. I feel like I never hear about personalized learning without talking about ed tech. That's a really fair point. And and debate moderator who also happened to be Alex Hernandez did bring up this point at the summit. He said, give us your thoughts about technology and education. Okay, so Diane gave a two-word answer, gigantic opportunity. But Benjamin's response was a bit more nuanced. In fact, he recommends that anyone who's interested in education technology should distance themselves from personalized learning. I have been very careful when I have uh, given these screens against personalized learning to say it's not about technology. And in fact, I think the people who support technology in education would be wise to start to distance themselves from the personalized learning movement because there's actually many, many ways in which technology can be wonderful in schools. What happens is you wrap this up in the ideological banner of personalization. The studies are coming, folks. Like the research is coming out, I and mean, just this week, you know, the Walton Family Foundation was, you know, woke up to the fact that online charter schools suck, right? And it was entirely predictable if you looked at learning science that would be the case. Entirely predictable, okay? So I, I'm going to make the prediction now that as we move forward with personalization, we'll see exemplars where it's fantastic, but we also will start to see the stuff that I have seen with my own eyes start to emerge. And so if you're pro-technology like I am, you think that there are ways in which technology can assist learning, and that the creative teacher should be able to, in their classroom, you know, hand out a device if that's what will work, you know, and be able to access the World Wide Web, the internet, and have actual functioning internet, then be for that. But recognize that technology is actually sort of just one of like a thousand tools that should be in an effective teacher's toolkit. Wow. People in the audience laughed when Benjamin said that online charters sucked. But I'm actually concerned about that. I mean, kids are in those virtual classes like yeah, right now. Seriously. And and from my personal experience, having taught in the classroom, a physical one, not a virtual one, 
I can tell you that technology is far from the be-all, end-all. I mean, it's really just a tool. And what I'm getting from Benjamin is that a lot of schools, speakers, and sources are pushing personalized learning as being intricately connected to technology. That's what Summit Public Schools does, right? The entire model is deeply connected to students being in control of a personalized learning playlist on a device. Yeah, and, and listeners, you may be wondering, why is Summit so connected to tech? Well, part of the reason that Diane argues for is that it frees up the one teacher, one classroom model that's been prevalent in education for so long. You know, if we continue to focus on the sort of single teacher, single classroom responsible for these kids without any sort of redundancy or multiple eyes on things, we will have this problem of, with the best intentions, only one diagnosis and no sort of collaboration around that. I think there are structures in schools that actually, and technology and data support this, that enable a much broader view on kids, um, certainly what we're seeing in our schools. Man, Benjamin loved that comment and reciprocated in kind on the fact that we've been assessing student progress for years. Turn on the rep and attack the world, world wrestling stuff. Yeah. Um, because I disagree. I, I think we get second opinions in education all the time. And it's called. It, yeah, there's that. But it's called assessment, right? I mean, that's what an assessment is. And it's really interesting. I spent a year in New Zealand studying the New Zealand education system. So if you'll forgive me, so we go into this for a minute, but it will make sense. The New Zealand high schools, um, they test everything, okay? They have, they have assessments for like 60 different subjects. These are all available, by the way. You can go on and get them if you're a high school teacher and want to see what they tested. But what's interesting in New Zealand is that they have two forms of assessments. They have what are called internal and what are called external, okay? The internals are the ones that we might call formative, but they're also just sort of checks along the way that the teachers give. And then there's the external assessment, which is mostly what we're familiar with in the form of like the state tests or whatever the you know, uh, larger system test is using for school and sometimes teacher accountability. Okay, so here's what's interesting. There's data on this. In fact, the New Zealand Herald published a fascinating data visualization where you can go and look at the different schools in New Zealand based on the type of students they serve and the alignment between the internal and the external assessment. So if you go to a, what they call a high decile school, which is you know, wealthy kids, the overlap is almost entire. So like if, you, if, a, if your teacher says that you are on grade level, you're mastering your content, that lines up with the external assessment, okay? You go into decile one schools, the high poverty schools in New Zealand. What you'll see is that on the internal exams, the kids are scoring about as well as the kids in the high decile schools on the internal. And then when the external exam comes, it falls off a cliff, falls off a cliff. And so, in my opinion, this is the danger of personalized learning, is that when you create this ability to sort of, you know, you think that you can individually assess whether or not mastery is taking place, and the system is no longer designed, there can be any external check on that, because it no longer makes sense to have an external check. The whole system has been designed for personalized learning. You're not going to be able to find that out until the life outcomes for those kids who got screwed have played out in that form of not being able to have the life that we'd like them to have, or at least the opportunities that we'd like them to have as a result of the system providing them the education they should get. Okay, there we go. That's the big point. Personalized learning doesn't necessarily mean mastery of content. When you create an assumption that mastery is taking place without that external check, you might not see when negative outcomes are coming. So what does this all mean for the future? Would Benjamin rather we just eradicate personalized learning altogether? And even then, how does that fit in with the recent movements of the government? 
So I think, I think the good news is, is that um, history matters. Like, yes, there is pushback, and I think rightfully so, to some of the things that happened in the No Child Left Behind era. But I do think, like, completely unwinding the clock and saying that we're no longer going to have, you know, standards or expectations um, is it, that it, it's hard for me to imagine we'll go completely into the kale producing direction of schooling. It's, it's good for you. I do think, though, that, um, you know, what we will see is what we've seen prior to No Child Left Behind is that the places that probably need to have that external accountability the most will be the first to make use of this new freedom in ways that lower expectations for kids. Um, so that's the danger, and, and frankly, I see our entire political structure in the United States sort of bifurcating as a result of that, and the underinvestment in education. You know, I'll just go ahead and say it, particularly in the Deep South and in parts of this country. Um, I think that you're seeing some of the uh, ramifications of that in our current presidential Okay, Diane comes in a bit more balanced in her approach and actually wrapped up the debate admitting that she has assumptions herself. Perhaps personalized learning isn't the answer, and individuals like her and Benjamin on both ends of the spectrum have come together to find common ground. We'll let her finish things off. I think it depends on uh, what the people in rooms like this decide to do, actually. And I think that um, there's one pathway where um, the two sort of ends of that spectrum um, encamp even more and decide that they're going to dig in and try to, to, to win outright one way or the other. And I actually think if that happens, the pendulum will swing the other way. Um, I actually think, having been sort of a, a part of one of those, uh, I guess, the, the prevailing camp for the last period of time, um, I'm questioning a lot of my assumptions and my beliefs, and I actually think there is a middle ground that we need to move to, and that we are experiencing a natural correction that should, in fact, happen. And I actually want to be a part of that third-way solution so that we don't swing all the way back. Um... Props to Benjamin and Diane for giving their honest thoughts during the panel. And also thanks to Kayla Deltzer and all of the other writers who contributed to EdSurge this week. And while we've got your ears, we want to tell you that EdSurge is going to be all over the place over the next few weeks, both virtually and in person. Let's start with the virtual. First up, join us in the virtual Shark Tank, where three educator sharks will evaluate iStation, ThinkCirca, and Lexia Core 5 to see just how well they support English language learners. You know, you can expect tough questions, and there's going to be a lot of good conversation on a topic that will impact teachers and entrepreneurs for years to come. By the way, speaking of the virtual, I'm hosting a webinar on what you need to know about the Every Student Succeeds Act. It's at 12 p.m. Pacific time on February 17th, and Whiteboard Advisors and I will convene North Carolina Governor Bev Perdue, former White House Education Advisor Andy Rotherham, and Carissa Moffitt-Miller from the Council of Chief State School Officers. They, along with Whiteboard Advisors David DeShryer, will give you the need-to-know version of the Every Student Succeeds Act. Question and answers will follow, and audience members can submit their questions, so talk to me. But we're not just hitting the virtual road. We're hopping on the physical one, too, and heading to New York City to discuss this question. Is an EdTech accelerator right for your company? With more than a dozen options in the U.S. alone, how do you decide which one is right for you? Panelists will include veteran entrepreneurs and educators who will help you decide. Join us at our free New York City meetup on Wednesday, February 24th. 
Yeah, more travel. Yep. But in the meantime, aren't you excited to be back at Ed Surge's offices for a while? Oh, yes. This place is my second home. I do miss the hustle and bustle of all those people I saw at those events, though. Already looking forward to my New York trip. What? What? You just got back. Where in the world is Mary Jo Matta coming to a classroom near you? I'm literally playing that game right now. Listeners, I'll see you at our New York meetup or at South by Southwest EDU if you're there, too. And beyond. She's gone in a flash. Listeners, she's Mary Jo Matta and she's on the move. I'm Blake Montgomery. I'll see you next time with or without my itinerant colleague. This is the Ed Surge Podcast. Where in the world is Mary Jo Matta? I'm seriously going to stop the recording. Do we need anything else? No. You actually listen to Carol's back.